The scripture this morning is from Philippians 7, or 3, 7 through 11, excuse me. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered, suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, God, me, Lord, I'm in need of your uh, all-sufficient grace this morning. God, I'm a beggar in need of your grace. And um, Lord, I so uh, desire um, to, um, to know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Got I so uh, long for that, and I so know that there's so much more um, of you to uh, enjoy and to, um, to understand and submit myself to. And God, so I just, I pray, God, that uh, this morning, Lord, that um, as I, um, much like every Sunday, maybe more this Sunday, God, I just, I feel uh, ill-prepared, uh, ill-equipped, uh, feel uh, lied to by the enemy. Uh, but God, I uh, stand knowing that, um, that your word does not return void, that you will accomplish the work that you set out to accomplish in each of us um, through uh, your transforming, uh, life-giving, abiding word. And so God, I just pray for the posture of our hearts this morning. God, I pray, God, that we would just posture ourselves uh, by your strength to be able to receive your word. And God, I pray that you would just uh, do a work uh, inside out in each of us, no matter where we're at, God, that we just know more of your love for us that would compel us to, um, to want to know you in deeper and more intimate ways. So God, we just continue to commit this, uh, this gathering to you. And we say, God, um, have your way with each of us. And we pray all these things in the risen name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are uh, continuing in, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, we're in verses 7 through 11, where uh, Elaine just read. And, um, I, and I'm going to make a joke out of this, because I've already joked with him enough times. Um, but there's, uh, <laughs> um, for the last like six weeks, we get together as pastors on Wednesdays, Wednesday mornings. And we, oftentimes what we do is we, we review the last um, gathering and just ask how it went and, and uh, give some input to one another on the on the preaching and on the singing and whatever it might be. And then we look forward to the next two, three, four, five, six Sundays, and we just kind of think ahead and think through the passage. And, and one of the pastors said, 
like, you know, like six weeks out every week, like, wow, who's got, who's got Philippians 3, 7 through 11? I go, well, I can do. And, it's, and he goes, man, that's like, that's, like the, that's like the bullseye. It's what everybody needs to know about. It's about God's grace, not our works. And, you know, and I'm just sitting there going, don't blow it, don't blow it, don't blow it. <laughs> and um, so I feel like um, in, my, in my flesh, in my strength, without God's spirit, um, like um, covering up my inadequacies this morning, that I'm going to blow it. Uh, but I know that God is so much bigger than that. And so my goal is not to not blow it. My goal is not to like hit it out of the park. My goal is to be faithful with the text and just pray that God's spirit would, uh, would take it and uh, do a work in each of our hearts. Um, I've got a different direction, though, probably than what most uh, people, even this, um, this uh, man, this dear brother that encouraged me on this passage, I think I might go a different, different direction. I've titled this sermon, The Surpassing Worth of Knowing Christ Jesus, My Lord. The Surpassing Worth of Knowing Christ Jesus, My Lord. And um, it's, it's all about knowing Christ. Not in a knowing about him kind of way, but in a knowing of him kind of way, in the most intimate of ways. My wife and I have been married 38 years, and she tells me that, that she still doesn't understand me. She still, she says, I'm, she says, I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life. Um, and she said, he said, even before she married me, she says, I know that I'm going to spend the rest of my life um, really working hard to get to know this guy. And there's a part of me that goes, well, really? Am I that hard to get to know? And there's another part of me that goes, well, that's kind of cool that she really wants to know me. That she just doesn't want to um, um, survive me or exist with me, but she wants to thrive in a relationship with me. And the way that we, re- we thrive in a relationship with one another is we know each other. And we know each other in the most intimate of ways. Knowing your neighbor or knowing our fellow mankind is more complex than knowing about a house or a book or even a language. The more complex the object, the, the, more, the harder it is to know that object. Knowing a living thing is vastly more complicated than knowing something abstract like a language or something inanimate like a museum or a tree or a rock or a mountain. If any of you have had a dog, you know something about your dog. We've had three dogs in our marriage. We had a St. Bernard. We had a, a Mastiff, big man, a small man syndrome. And then we went to a, uh, a Wheaton Terrier. And um, everybody knew our dog in the neighborhood because he always escaped. And they, we'd get calls and say, we got Tucker again. And, uh, but they didn't really know him. I mean, they like, knew this happy dog that always wanted food and water and wanted to be petted, but they didn't really know him. They didn't live with him for 10 years and have to. Every, for, for all 10 years, um, whenever somebody would come in the front door, he'd go to the front door wagging his tail and like, pee on the floor. That he, when the door would be open, he would go out the door. People didn't know Tucker. If you were to say, I know this dog, it would normally mean that it wouldn't mean that you've just read about the breed or you've, you've rescued him from the street or you've saw him on the street. It probably means that you know how the dog behaves and you can tell how, and you can talk about how the dog needs to be handled. I almost used a horse example, but I just figured I'd be speaking about something I know nothing about. Thank you, Gary. 
This type of knowledge only comes through some prior experience with a particular dog or the acquaintance or having an acquaintance with the dog or living with the dog, seeing the dog in action. In the case of human beings, the position is further complicated by the fact, unlike a dog, people cover up themselves and we don't reveal our heart and our emotions and our thoughts and our dreams and our fears with one another. Sometimes we spend our entire lives getting to know people, don't we? And it's, it's actually a good thing. But it's hard to get to know one another in, in the most intimate of ways. Generally speaking, the quality and extent of our knowledge of others depends more on them than it does depend upon us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than our attempting to know them. Knowing God is infinitely more complex than knowing other human beings. I'm not just talking about knowing about him, but knowing God. A few questions right up front that I want to answer, ask and answer is, who are we made for or what are we made for? And the Bible tells us that we are made for We are made to know God. We're created to know the Creator. The next question is, what aim as Christians should we set ourselves in? What should be our aim of life as Christians? To know God. That should be our aim of life. And what is this eternal life that Jesus gives? What is it? In John 17, 3, says simply that it is to know God. Jesus says, as he's praying to the Father, the high priestly prayer, he's praying, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is the best thing in life? What brings more joy and contentment than anything else that we could ever acquire or accomplish? It's to know God. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says this, Thus thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. You see, it's not enough just to know about God or to understand God, but we're to boast that we know him. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see, once we understand why we're here, we really understand it. Most of life's problems and trials fade. Once we know that we were created to know our creator, who knew us first. It actually makes it easier to live the joyful, joyfully obedient life. Let me ask you this. Do you know more about God or more of God? Now, just a confession that um, as a pastor who loves God's final and authoritative word, that we stand on it um, firmly in this church. 
and that it will, it will never depart us. It's our, it's our final and primary authority. That sometime, actually, that um, Bible studies, studying the Bible um, with the main priority of learning about God can actually lead us to places of joyless and hopeless and fruitless lives. So hear me on this. The, the danger isn't learning about God, is it, but learning about God without knowing more of Him and knowing more of His love for us. Do you know more about God or do you know more of God? My prayer is that this morning that you would walk away with a desire like never before to know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus our Lord. And that everything in comparison, every other good and perfect gift from the Father of lights, in comparison, would be a big zero. In comparison. So we've been teaching through this book, this letter. We've titled the sermon series, Encouraged to Press On. Because the church in Philippi is very much like the church here in Windsor. That we kind of live in peace times. We're free to preach. We're free to worship. We're free to evangelize. There's not a lot of outside pressure on, on, um, on us. This church is living in um, unity with one another, uh, desiring to love Jesus, love one another, to reach our fellow man with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul knows that there's storm clouds on the horizon. And he encourages them in this letter not to take their foot off the spiritual gas and put their foot on the brake, but continue to press on. And Jason taught a couple of weeks ago, weeks ago from um, chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, where we saw that Paul warned the church that the dogs are coming. He was warning them against um, Judaizers that would want to tell us, tell the church then and tell us today, that yeah, sure you were saved by grace, but you've got to continue to be good enough for God to continue loving you. You've got to continue doing that. And then we saw Stephen last week with Paul saying, now don't listen to those guys. They're going to tell you to put confidence in your flesh, put confidence in your achievements and in your credentials. But Paul said this in last week in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I'm not going to go into every one of those. I'd encourage you, if you missed a sermon last week, to listen to it and understand um, the uh, false hope for salvation that Paul put in his good resume. Not a bad resume, it's a good resume. You see, Paul could never do enough to prove his worth to God. Paul was a very religious man. Paul had a naughty and nice list. 
before, before he was saved. That uh, some of you might have the same testimony where, where on this side of the list he had all the areas that he, uh, the nice, and over here was a shorter list of naughty. And he said that, it, that because the, the good outweighed the bad, he must be, he must be in. And then on that road to Damascus that we see in Acts, while Paul was on his way to persecute Christians, to kill them, God radically grabbed a hold of him. When Paul was an enemy and a persecutor of Jesus and his followers, God saved him. Paul testifies to this. Paul is the apostle of grace. He says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's look at verse 7. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything that Paul mentions in verses 5 through 6, that he considered gain, his heritage, his behavior, his zeal for his religion, he counted it all as loss. And the gain and loss here, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, they're accounting terms. They're assets and liabilities. They're credits and debits. Everything that he put his confidence in for salvation, he is now saying is a debit, or it's in the loss column because of Christ. And it's not because Paul's heritage was, was bad or, or his accomplishments were worthless. Some were actually a gift from God and a result of God's providence. However, now on this side of grace, Paul understands that no amount of religion would get him in right standing with his maker. I've got a similar story as Paul. I was raised in a very religious home. Um, I went to a religious school from first through eighth grade. And um, I just, I I knew that I was born into a family that was um, generations part of this particular denomination. And I knew because my parents told me that if Danny, if you would just be good, if you would just not lie, if you would just be kind, if you would um, go to confession once every month, even though they say, Danny, you probably need it once every hour. If you would just take the elements, the communion every Sunday. If you would be confirmed. God will love you. He'll love you. And you're good to go. What a lie. What a lie. I don't blame my parents. I don't blame that church necessarily. God used all of that, actually, in my life. I'm thankful for all of that. As I'm sure Paul is thankful for his credentials and his accomplishments. Probably what he wasn't probably thankful for being party to the stoning of Stephen. But he also knows that God is provident in our sin and that he uses our sin as well. You see, all of Paul's Jewish religious credentials that he thought were in his prophet column were actually worthless and damning. Thus, he put them in the lost column when he saw the glories of Christ. Isaiah 64, 6 speaks to this. We all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, literally like a menstrual rag. That's what righteous deeds are to the unbeliever. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
Then we look at verses 8 and 9, and Paul emphasizes this. And he, now he's talking about not, not the loss that, that happened in the gain that happened at the time of salvation, but now as he lives his life, this side of grace, and this applies to you if you know Jesus Christ. Today, he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul's given a fuller description of the radical change in his life that was informed and motivated by God's amazing grace. Paul's not saying this. He's not saying that, uh, that I, I not only put everything I had confidence in for salvation in the lost column, or excuse me, he is saying this. He put, he put his heritage, his accomplishments, his behavior, his religion, his church attendance, his Christian schooling, he put his giving, he put his service, he put all of that into the lost column. He says, indeed, I now count everything as loss. Everything is lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What entails everything? It's not imminently clear, but my guess is the Greek for everything is everything. Yet it certainly includes the former gains that we saw in verses 5 through 6, but it implies more. Includes everything that we might consider to have value in this present age. Our religious advantages, our status, our material benefits, our honor, our comforts. Yes, even our family. All these Paul counted as a total loss in comparison. Key in comparison. In comparison with knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. Not simply because of Christ that he considered all things lost, but because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And in comparison, everything else is worthless. Paul's former accomplishments had become comparatively worshipped to him, not because they were bad, they weren't. But because they had the potential to keep him from something better. And that's knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. You know, this is where I live, right here. This is where I live. And I live most days going through the motions. I live most days understanding that Jesus died for me and he rose again from the dead. I, rose, I, I live most days understanding that I've been bought by the blood of Christ and I've been adopted into his forever family. But I don't live most days with, the, with, the, with an insatiable desire to know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. And if that's what I was created for, if that's what I was saved for, if that's what eternal life is, is to grow in understanding the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus is my Lord. I want more of that. I want more of that. If I can know of the one who created the universe, who created me and you and everything that we get to enjoy, and I can know him in more intimate ways, I want that. And one of the reasons I know that I, that I live in this place and that I, that I don't have it is because when something goes wrong, when something goes wrong in my life, my reaction isn't typically to lean into the nearness of God, but it's to take things into my own hands. It's to complain. It's to have a heart that is discontent. It's, it's having a heart that is not thankful. 
says in verse 8, again, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And he's not talking about learning more about God. And whatever, if, if you're involved in any pursuit, in the end of that pursuit, any, any good Bible study, whether it be your community group, whether it be BSF, whether it be a Bible study, biblical distinctives, whatever it is, if you um, go and leave only with a desire to, to just the coolness factor, just to, to learn and uncover more truths about God, about God and about His Bible. That's what I'm all about. I want to know more, 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 no more. And it doesn't lead to more intimacy with the Lord. Stop it. Stop it and pause because there is, there is no direct correlation um, between knowing more about God and knowing more of God. Some of the people that know the most of God, that are, have the most intimate relationships, know the least. And I'm not saying stop knowing about God. But if you find yourself with increasing, um, decreasing intimacy, and how do you know that? Because you've got increasing complaining and decreasing joy and decreasing hope. That was a bonus. Paul's typical way of referring to Jesus, if you look at the beginning of Philippians, you look at the beginning of most of the epistles, is he refers to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? He flips it here. He talks about considering um, everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not, not the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, and. I believe Paul is emphasizing the priority of relationship with Jesus. Not just knowing about him in a textbook kind of way, but knowing him in the most intimate of relationships. By starting with Christ, which means um, Messiah or Savior, he reminds us of God's eternal love for us. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Jesus is first and foremost a function and a result of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins. It's also a reminder that not only can we know Him in more intimate ways, but He knew us first. Christ Jesus, my Lord. The Lord in His rightful position, Jesus in His rightful position at the right hand of the Father, rules over all the universe. He is, in fact, Lord. And we are to submit ourselves to Him. Jesus is Lord is a fundamental Christian creed. Not only does it tell us who Jesus was and is the Lord, but it tells us what is required of us, submission to Him. But without the reminder that He is first Christ Jesus, or Jesus the Christ we can become obedient to him as Lord to earn relationship. See, the same thing that Paul did before he was regenerated, before he was in Christ, that he saw God as, he saw him as Yahweh. He saw him as Lord. And he jumped through every hoop possible to please God. And we can do that in our relationship this side of grace, even though we're in Christ. That what Paul is reminding the church of
is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and then responding to that by living underneath his headship as Lord. He says in 8C at the end of verse 8, he says, For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Rubbish is literally dung. It's what Tucker did in the neighbor's yards when they ran away. It's garbage. And I think it's a reference probably going back to the dogs that he was warning Paul about. But rubbish is literally dung, for I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. And he doesn't merely think of these things as having comparatively no value, but also um, he, he doesn't live with them constantly in his mind anymore. Um, I'm going to just do something really dangerous, something that wasn't, isn't in my notes, but I was just thinking about this on the way over here, that um, Paul says, for his sake, for Jesus' sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. So how is it that he suffered the loss of all things? Like Paul is voluntarily um, setting these things aside so that he can know the surpa- he can um, enjoy the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, or Christ Jesus as Lord. And I was thinking of going back to chapter 2, where Paul described what Jesus did. He says, have this mind among yourselves, chapter 2, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You remember what we talked about? What did, what did it mean that Jesus emptied himself and, became, and took the form of a servant? It means that, that Jesus didn't empty himself of being God, but he emptied himself of all the rights and privileges that he enjoyed as being the, the reigning God before he became God incarnate. And I think there's a similar sense here where Paul is saying for his sake. You see, you see Jesus emptied himself for our sake. Jesus became a servant, took the form of a servant, became in the likeness of man for our sake. And Paul's saying, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. That, that the things that Paul is considering loss, that didn't mean that he's, um, it didn't mean that if he, for example, if I've got a net worth of, of $10,000, it doesn't mean that for me to um, be in God's good graces, I've got to give away my money. It's just that, that in comparison, in comparison to knowing, in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, he, he counts all of his accomplishments, all of his credentials as done. Because he wants to live for Christ in an unencumbered way. And I don't know about you, there's so many distractions. I mean, it's life, but there's so many distractions that, that keep me from pursuing the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Let's look at, eight, let's look at um, verse 9. Actually, 8C in verse 9. In order that... For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This verse bothers me, actually. It seems like works. 
that I do this that I may gain Christ. Paul, I thought you already gained Christ. Like, what, like what's going on here? And I believe that, that Paul's uh, in gaining Christ has everything to do about an increasing relationship with the risen Christ. Rather than taking pride in his own accomplishment, Paul says that he gains Christ by the loss of such things. His salvation comes not from his accomplishments, but from depending on nothing but the Savior's provision. In Paul's case, the gain came first, that, he, that Jesus gained salvation for Paul. Now Paul wants to gain more intimacy with the Lord, and he knows that there's all kinds of good things that stand in the way of our intimacy with the Lord. He says that not only may I gain Christ, but be found in him. Be found in him not to have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is an already but not yet statement. If you're in Christ, Jesus, God sees you in Christ. I mean, you are, you're in Christ. You're, you're, you're fully Christian today. But he's also saying that he wants to one day when Jesus returns to be found in Christ, not trusting in his own righteousness, but trusting in the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to him as a result of his faith. I'm going to skip down to verses 10 through 11. And he's got this dot, 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 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I like the way the NIV reads. Literally, I want to know him. Paul says, I want to know him. The reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is that the victim of Calvary is loosed. He's at large, so to speak, so that any human being anywhere throughout any period of time can enjoy the same relationship with Jesus Christ as his disciples did when he was on this earth incarnate. In verse 8, Paul said that all is in the lost column because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. He now shares his deepest desire of the heart that I may know him. I want to know him. I need to know him. I'm willing to get rid of anything and everything that interferes with knowing. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him in the most intimate way. And you know what? God in his kindness did to me what I wasn't willing to do to myself because he knew what I needed. And that for me... What was standing in the way of the surpassing knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, was all the stuff, my false identities. And one of the things that the Lord had to do to me in my prayers is that he won't do it to you. Because even though I wouldn't trade it for the world, I wouldn't, I wouldn't choose it again. And that's where I had my identity wrapped up in being a successful stockbroker. I had my identity wrapped up in living in a big house in a golf course community. I had my identity in that, um, that I knew that I was, if not the biggest giver, one of the biggest givers in the church. I had my identity wrapped up in having um, the ability to put my kids in a Christian school. I had my identity wrapped up in being married to Nancy Sinovac. I had my identity wrapped up in being a hearty 
who we were all bred to be millionaires. And God in his kindness, God in his kindness allowed me to make some mistakes where we lost everything. And when you put your identity in uh, things like um, money and bank accounts and prestigious jobs and people looking up to you and the Lord takes it away, it gives you an opportunity to draw near to him like never before. You see, God's, one of God's primary ways of creating intimacy between him and us is suffering, actually. And we're going to talk that, about that in a minute. But Paul says, literally, I want to know him. I need to know him. I'm willing to get rid of anything and everything that interferes with knowing him. You see, when you read through the epistles, Paul knows nothing about gloomy, joyless, Hopeless Christianity. He knows nothing about encouraging believers just to stay in the trenches and slug it out, just surviving. What, what we're reminded of in the Gospels, what Jesus says is that he came to give us life and give us life what? Abundantly. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. You see, the the solution to our joyless, hopeless, um, lack of contentment, thankless lives is knowing our Creator. It's a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's not to discount at all the hardship in this life. And there's just seasons where we actually need help from one another to do this. That's the purpose of the body of Christ. One of the purposes. So Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. For Paul to know Christ in the most intimate of ways is first of all to know the power of his resurrection. The power that comes to believers now in this life, on this earth, on the basis of Jesus' resurrection. The power of the resurrection may refer to the influence that Christ has on the believer, but it more likely refers to the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Ephesians 1 says this, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. You see, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Peter says it another way. He says, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him, who called us to his own glory and excellence. And I believe if you looked at that word, knowledge is not simply uh, information. It's actually Gnesco, the knowledge of God, by which he has granted to us his, his precious and very great promises, so that, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from corruption see, all the apostles' powers were concentrated on knowing Christ personally. 
The power of the resurrection had dazzled him on the road to Damascus. Jesus, he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And he never got over it. Every day for Paul was a personal resurrection day. Every day for Paul was an affirmation that he'd been raised with Christ, as Romans 6 tells us, that, we've been, that we died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, therefore what? We can walk in newness of life. We don't have to walk in the old way anymore. So Paul kept seeking the power of the resurrection as the avenue for knowing Christ more deeply. And then he said this. I don't know why he had to put this in there. And that we, may sh- that we would share in his sufferings or in the fellowship of his sufferings or, or in the participation of Christ's sufferings. I don't know about you, but I don't want to sign up for that. I really don't want to participate in, in or fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. I'm very willing to, to participate in fellowship in, in all the other stuff. But you know, quite frankly, the reason that it's here is that there is no greater um, or quicker path to intimacy with our risen Lord than enduring the sufferings that he providentially gives us. Knowing the power of his resurrection is placed first before the sharing of his sufferings because one will not be able to to put suffering and death in proper perspective unless one is first convinced that God conquered death by raising Jesus from the dead. I love this in Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. We'll be finishing up in just a couple of minutes. It says this, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, He grew up in Pharaoh's house. He was an adopted child of the king. He had everything. By faith, Moses, when he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, the sufferings of Christ greater wealth, than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What was his reward? It's Christ himself. It's it's intimacy with the Lord. It's knowing, it's a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. My wife asked me this morning, she said, "Do um, do you feel like Paul is talking about all suffering here? And and, and I, th- I, I feel like Paul is talking primarily about Christian suffering here. The, the suffering that we would participate in Christ's suffering. I believe it's the, the suffering that comes from um, standing, um, uh, being Christian in a non-Christian world. Of, of evangelizing with, the, with the, the risk of somebody defriending you or, or firing you. of unashamedly letting other people know that you are a uh, lover of the risen Christ. On the other hand, I think he's certainly talking about all suffering. Just in my 60 years and in my uh, 10 years as a pastor, those of you that I know that have the sweetest relationship with the Lord are the ones that have had the most hardship. 
And I had a young man ask me on Saturday morning that I was meeting with at Starbucks, just ask the classic question, why does God allow so much suffering in this world? And we didn't get to that discussion. It's going to be our discussion this next Saturday. But what I'm going to tell them is that, 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 that the real question is, is why does God allow so much salvation in this world? Because we're all rebels. We're all enemies. But the reality that suffering leads us to the cross, that God allows suffering because we live in a broken world, And he continues to allow his children, you and I, who are on this side of grace, to suffer because we still live in a fallen world. But he also knows that it's going to create maximum intimacy with us and him. And he wants that. And he goes on to say that that we might attain the resurrection from the dead. And Paul is saying that we're all going to die. Memento mori. Latin for remember death. Remember death, we're all going to die. And it gives Paul great hope to, to know that, that he doesn't know the pathway to death, he doesn't know the pathway to the resurrection, but in fact, one day he will die and he will attain the resurrection of the dead by God's glorious grace. Let me just give you a few application points to think about. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a lot of knowledge about God. If you get any questions on that, talk to me afterwards, email me. Don't give me an anonymous note. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. You might be able to state the gospel clearly. You might be able to smell bad doctrine a mile away. Yet the joy of the Lord and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings may be absent. You might know a great deal about God without the knowledge of Him. We must not measure our relationship with God by our knowledge about Him. The width of our knowledge of Him is no gauge for the depth of our knowledge of Him. You might know a great deal about godliness. Paul did before he was saved. Yet you might have little knowledge of Him. If you can have all the right theology and all the right notions of Him in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities of which they refer, you don't know enough of God. Tim Keller said this about religion. He said, religion says this, that my prayer life consists largely of petition and it only heats up when I'm in time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of the environment. The gospel says this, My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My primary purpose of prayer is intimacy with Him. So how do we get here? And I look look out there at, at my beloved brothers and sisters, not thinking about any one of you individually, but just knowing that that we're all on this journey together. That we all have distractions that keep us from the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. So how do we get here when we're occupied by all these good things that are still in our game column? The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. 
To taste is to, is to get a mouthful of something with a view of appreciating its flavor. You see, a dish may look good and it might be recommended by others, but we don't know its quality until we've tasted it. In the same way, we don't know a person's quality until we've tasted or experienced the person's friendship. When a man knows God, losses and crosses cease to matter to him. And I want to just encourage you, and we'd love to help you get there. I'd love for you to help me get there. That this, this surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus our Lord is found in prayer and time in the Word. Preaching the gospel to ourselves, which Josh Trigstad is going to talk about next week. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for um, the crazy idea that you want to know us. And uh, you want us to know you. I guess in a sense, Father, um, you already know us. <laughs> you know every hair on our head. You know every thought before we think it, every word before we say it. You know our uh, secret desires. You know our secret sins. And you still want us. You still want a relationship with us. I've got to thank you for this uh, great reminder that when Paul was not only running in the opposite direction, but he was a persecutor of the way of Christians, that by your grace you saved him. And God, I thank you that you didn't just leave us here, this side of salvation, awaiting your return one day in a hopeless, joyless slugging it out kind of environment but that your nearness is our good that you're not only the God most high but you are the God most nigh or most near and so God I just pray that you uh, Holy Spirit would um, Father that you would just hear our prayer and that we would pray a bold prayer and God that you would help us whatever is in our gain column right now that we are um, that that, that are idols standing in your place, God, that you would give us the courage to move those to the lost column, that they would be in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing you of no value. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we continue to worship.